This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health Insurance with AIA Vitality, cover that protects and rewards. To find out more, call 133 AIA or visit aiahealth.com.au today. When there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mark market. Well, Alex Wiselitz, thanks very much for coming on Masters of the Market. I know you get a lot of requests for your time, so really appreciate you making the effort to come on today. Yeah, no, thanks very much, and uh, interested to have a chat and uh, um, speak to your audience. So I thought we might start with some of the people that shaped your investment philosophies. It probably felt appropriate to start with your parents who came here from Poland when you were were quite young. What lessons did you pick up from, I guess, their worldview and that experience? And and how do you think some of those lessons might be different to to kids whose parents didn't share that experience? Yeah, no, thanks for mentioning them. Um, They were uh, profound influences on me because... I think we came to Australia, well, they were refugees, really, came out of war-torn uh, Europe under pretty horrendous situations and uh, sort of classic uh, refugees in the sense that uh, they had come from a, uh, you know, very sort of cultured uh, life, a uh, reasonable uh, lifestyle over there, and then came to Australia with really literally the suitcase in their hand and, and nothing much else. I had to start from the beginning and do all the... Um, uh, jobs seven days a week, multiple uh, jobs where you could get them really to put the food on the table and to get a roof over their head for uh, for them. I had, they had a young, my older sister was just very um, uh, young when they came and then I came along a few years later. So it was, uh, you know, if I look back on it now and, I, and uh, you know, you can relate to a lot of the refugee problems that we've got and challenges uh, in this country, but globally as well. And and you really admire the quality of people who come with no language, with no money, with no contacts uh, into it. And I think it, uh, and despite that, um, you know, they kept a, um, a focus on kids and their paramount uh, dream really for, uh, for myself and my siblings was to get an education because they believe education would, um, you, you would connect with uh, Australians, uh, you would understand the culture, and you would have a chance for a uh, successful career if you got an education. So their dream was a, a good school and ultimately university. Um, and those were strong values, even though they were pretty uh, humble and not well off, but did well later on. They're very uh, good uh, open doors to people who were in even worse situations than them. So I think you learn some good values. You learn to be charitable, you'd learn to share. And despite that, I remember music and joy in the household, even though we didn't have much. So uh, no matter what your position in life, you've got to make the most of it and, and enjoy the journey as much as you can. Uh, hard work was uh, the road to success and education in their view. There's so many successful entrepreneurs around the world. I think Bezos was from, um, his parents were, were immigrants, Steve Jobs. Do you think that correlation, do you think there's an inherent... I guess, hard work that comes from seeing, you know, being able to model. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You're, you're forced to work hard and take whatever jobs you can get. And, uh, and in doing that, you're not only just surviving, but I think you're aspiring for a better life all the time. And uh, you also see people who have got a better life in the community and say, well, I, I can do that. It's a land of opportunities, really, Australia, if you work hard and do those things. And that's what I learned from my parents. It was like nothing was impossible because they went on. My father in, in, in particular did numerous uh, jobs. He was basically was going to train as an engineer in Poland before the war. Uh, so he was a good handyman. He was doing handyman work and he fell into, uh, he was a good talker, even though he had a strong Australian accent as he learned the, the language and just fell into uh, real estate, selling real estate. And ultimately, he became a real estate agent, owned his own uh, um, agency, and later became sort of a land uh, developer on the fringes of Melbourne. So um, if you would have asked him what his journey would have been, 
and end up as a land developer in Australia. Um, it, it would have been the furthest thing from his mind. But you do what you got to do, and you look for opportunities. And uh, and and I guess you got to be flexible and adaptive. And those are a lot of the skills that make successful uh, lives and successful business um, uh, capabilities. And you need them. You need to be able to pivot. You need to be able to see uh, see the challenges, see the opportunities at the same time, and uh, be ready for them. What was your dad's tolerance to risk as a property developer? Is he comfortable with debt or is it something? No, he- no, he was. He didn't like debt. He came from the old school of not wanting to owe anybody anything and just do it on his own. I suspect he could have been a much bigger developer if he would have taken on more risk. Uh, but he was also philosophical about living a good, balanced life, spending time with the kids when he could afford to later on, having done the hard yards early. So... He was very content with, uh, you know, just doing it on his own balance sheet, uh, not exposing himself too much, uh, but doing it pretty smartly. So um, I think I've, I've, I've got some conservatism about debt, probably from uh, from being at the dinner table and hearing hearing from him talking about that that way. What are the major differences you see from property transactions to perhaps share transactions? I think it's um, uh, they're dramatically different, um, and mainly because of the journey of time. That uh, you know, he was doing land subdivision, and it's long-term planning to get zoning and subdivisional permits and uh, the planning conditions. So you've got to be pretty patient, and in doing so, you've also got to have a bit of a portfolio because the time uh, lags and they need to overlap. So you're actually busy enough. Uh, that suited his lifestyle because he would later on travel and, you know, you could afford to take time out. Um, share market is a lot more dynamic, I think. Uh, you've got a lot more immediate impacts and influences on it that you've got to take into account. Not only the company specifically you're looking at, but the global macro situations which affect the day-to-day uh, perspective. So you've got to uh, take that into account all the time. Did you manage to get your dad interested in the stock market the more you got interested in it? He, he, he didn't really uh, get it. He, uh, he supported me being involved in it because uh, he, he thought, uh, at the end of the day, he thought all businesses were common sense. So that whether it was a public company or a private company, the way you run it has got to be based around, uh, you know, sensible, balanced, uh, risk-mitigated kind of decision-making. So... From that point of view, he didn't care if it was real estate or any type of company or any type of industry. But he didn't like the ups and downs and gyrations of the stock market. And uh, he didn't like that volatility. And he wasn't interested in that. He was happy to sleep more comfortably at night. Yeah. And so you finished school, you studied law and ended up making your way over to New York and working for Sir Robert Holmes Accord. Yes. What what was that experience like? It would have been a pretty dynamic experience. Oh, that was pretty amazing. Um, I, I sort of studied commerce and law, and but I, I really knew I didn't want to uh, be a, um, a practicing lawyer for too long and uh, sort of documenting all the back end of deals. I really wanted to get involved in the deal making itself, which I thought was uh, a path forward. Well, I didn't know exactly that I would start my own business at that point in time, but I was interested in learning about the financial markets. So, Initially, I worked on Wall Street at a firm called Prudential uh, um, Securities, um, and that was really a uh, my first introduction to uh, equities, to funds, to commodities, and other uh, financial products. And that was a great learning curve, but that was more on the sell side, and I didn't think I had the uh, the uh, selling skills in particular uh, to go that way. I wanted to be more on the buy side and. I looked around and tried to find an entrepreneur, and it just so happened that Holmes Accord, who was Australia's first billionaire, was starting to spread his wings overseas. And I was lucky enough to reach out to him and opened his uh, opened, co-opened his office in New York. Um, but that was a wonderful experience because even though I was very young, um, he um, he took time out to really coach me, I guess, and uh, encourage me. And he was night owl. So when he was awake in Australia in Perth, he'd call me in New York and, uh, you know, I was able to um, get more attention than probably anyone in his office actually at the same age. So, uh, and we grew 
from, about, I think he had about $10 million worth of uh, assets in the US when I joined. And within 18 months, we had uh, maybe $1.5 billion, which was a pretty uh, rapid and aggressive kind of uh, expansion. I was lucky because he encouraged me to to do everything on the investment side. So I was part of the global, uh, albeit the most junior member of the treasury team. So learning about finance and banking side, uh, doing the analysis on positions we're in, doing the trading in the equities. And indeed, he taught me everything about options because he was a leading proponent, maybe the leading proponent in Australia at the time. Um, and I worked for him for about four years, but it felt like 20 years of experience. And it was it was really exciting. And it was, uh, and you know, there were so many smart people as part of the group that uh, it was really, uh, you know, it was every day I was enthused by what was happening. And there were some audacious deals that he, he put together and, and tried to put together. What were some of the, the ones that really stuck in your mind that you were able to work on? Well, I was, uh, funnily enough, I was, you know, I was invited to work on the uh, BHP bid that he audaciously, as you said, uh, made. And in fact, I was sent back to my hometown in Melbourne and spent some time also in Perth. Um, so I, I went all the way to New York only to be sent back to Melbourne uh, to work on the BHP deal in, in actually the same offices where I have my offices today, uh, ironically. But um, that was that was incredible. Um, in the US, we were working on... Uh, big deals in the oil and gas space that was in uh, Texaco and Pennzoil. And previously he had been involved in Asaco and uh, a couple of other big mining companies there. You know, it, it was amazing because he was able, he had the courage, I guess, to, um, to back his conviction of value. And, uh, I, you know, if he would have been successful in that BHP uh, bid, he would have probably been the richest man on the planet today, rivaling uh, Jeff Bezos or one of those guys, who knows? Um, what was it? How big was BHP then when he tried to, to take it over? Can you remember? Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was the biggest company in Australia at the time. Yeah. Um, so, and he was he was uh, you know bidding from a very small uh, um, mining uh, trucking operation, so uh, called Wigmore. So, it was it was as you say audacious, but uh, it was a sign of, of the man, and it taught me a lot because. He, he taught me how to sort of dream big beyond what you even thought was was possible. Um, back your convictions, um, identify value, look for value that other people can't see, um, and and have it have a have a go, have a real go, uh, which he did. Uh, and he was extremely smart, positioned himself well, uh, always left his sort of options open, which way to go. Unfortunately, though, at the op opposite end of the um, of the extreme, to my father, he was very uh, much a believer in leverage, yeah. and in fact, uh, probably the uh, over leverage that he had at the time of the '87 crash is really uh, what uh, probably started the end of the empire because he had to unwind the positions to meet his uh, debt obligations, and and he couldn't really hold all the positions that he had at once. And that's another lesson. He really, um, he, he was having too many battles in too many geographies, I think at the same time, using leverage all the way through. And uh, um, there probably in hindsight wasn't enough buffer zone. And that's something I'm always conscious of, not having too much debt, uh, if, if at all. I don't mind the companies we're investing in having certain amount of debt, but I don't want to carry a lot myself. And secondly, not to, uh, stretch yourself too thin, both from a people point of view in terms of resources, but also also financial resources. That, that period in the, the 80s was um, was quite iconic, and, and markets were um, were going up at a at a rapid rate. Being a young guy, you know, relatively young during that time, did you feel that things were overheating, or because it was uh, early on in your career, did you, you not have a strong an awareness of that? those times couldn't last very yeah long. i think i mean i was in my 20s and i hadn't had a background in financial markets um i'd heard talk of um you know from my father of difficult times you know from war and and all these things but i think uh you know when you're when you're in your 20s and you're in an exciting environment and everything seems to be going up every day 
um, you know, those stories sort of fade into insignificance in the background and you get caught up in the momentum. Um, so I didn't really um, have a feel for, you know, the crash coming. Um, I had a feel for valuations being stretched when I looked at companies, even though I was just a young analyst and talking to others, uh, but I didn't really uh, have the ability to translate that into the possibility of a full-on crash. Uh, it concerns me a little bit today because we've seen the emergence of so many um, day traders in the market in the last uh, six months. Um, speak to the investment houses, their transaction levels are going through the roof and uh, other social um, transaction platforms like Robinhood and eToro are going, uh, are going also ballistic in terms of new people signing on and trading. And it worries me that there's a lot of young inexperienced uh, people who are because they're home because of the corona uh, virus uh, issues and can't can't go out of their house they're online a lot and they're trading a lot and it worries me that just like i was when i was young and inexperienced you couldn't see the sort of risk in the overall market um but certainly i couldn't see it at that at that time it's almost like the the, the young first-time investors have no fear but often you get people at the other end of the spectrum towards the end of the career where they just see risk and fear everywhere and almost find it hard to to have a swing at times. Have you managed that idea of, of knowing so much about markets now that they're knowing there are so many risks out there? How do you find the balancing act between still being able to jump in, particularly perhaps if times do seem uncertain versus just navigating the, the risks which are, are obviously there in markets? Yeah, well, I think it's what happens is you get those who are trading the momentum um, and we do that a little bit and you try and you got those who are still fundamentally looking for stock value which we try to focus on um, or specific sectors that we know a lot about and we can say that justifies a higher valuation or has some other characteristics that maybe are defensive uh, in the market so I think it's, it is a balancing act. I mean, at the moment, you've got both sides. You've got a lot of money still on the sidelines yeah. uh, from professional investors and a lot of family offices, private equity funds, hedge funds, who have raised a lot of money in the last few years. So on the one hand, you think, okay, that can support the market if there's any dips because they're ready to step in, and you can argue that way. On the other hand, you've got uh, you know uh, markets that are pretty much... Uh, close to what the pre-COVID breakout levels were. Um, but you've also got the environment of very low interest rates and lower interest rates tend to lead to higher valuations being acceptable as you're looking for returns. So PE multiples expand and other things expand in the low interest rate because your cap cost of capital is low. Um, so it is a balancing act. And I think, uh, uh, you know, my view is we're, we're conservatively active um, so for example we've been quite active in the recapitalizations that have been going on in the marketplaces as people have moved to strengthen their balance sheets uh, some businesses have gone to zero revenues and obviously no one's prepared for that so you've got to prop up your balance sheet and uh, others are taking advantage of it uh, for acquisition purposes and so on but generally um, uh, those companies who are under some sort of distress, uh, the investor institutional market sets the pricing, even though the companies may think they're worth more, but um, they're, they're setting the levels. And, they're, and so you're seeing a rebound. I think uh, 60 or 70% of all the recaps have, uh, have performed quite well since the recap. So I think post the GFC, there was something like $100 billion of recaps that went on and I think in this last uh, six months, we're already up to 40 or 50 billion uh, that's happening in the market. So that's been a very active place to be. And generally, it's been a good performance for us. The other thing we're doing is generally we're mid to long term investors, but we're finding ourselves trading a little bit more as, as markets are pushing up and just taking off a little bit, even with the companies we like. We like just to keep lowering our average cost or entry price. So we're trying to create for ourselves a buffer to be able to hold uh, hold some of those stocks we like for the longer term uh, by trading around our core position.
And so talking, I might, might just come back to, to influence before we go into market outlook, but the, the last person I wanted to touch on as well was, was the late Dick Pratt, who I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time with and whose daughter, Eloise, you, uh, you married. Yes. What was it like being a um, being an investment manager, I guess married to the richest person in Australia or, or one of them at the time, his daughter, and what were some of the discussions and, and learnings you got from him? Yeah, well, that was an interesting time. After I finished with Homes Accord uh, and um, I decided to come back to uh, Australia um, and I was looking, uh, I liked the experience of being working with an entrepreneur and I was looking around for who in my hometown was... Uh, uh, was such a entrepreneur and, and Richard Pratt uh, was one of the obvious uh, people. Um, and even though he's, he's had a big manufacturing operation, he was trying to build a financial services business at that time as well. So I was able to get an interview uh, uh, with the CEO, uh, CEO, Michael Naftali, and that led to an interview with Richard and ultimately uh, a job. Uh, and I started working there in the sort of corporate department of the of the uh, overall manufacturing as well as the um, as well as the financial services. Uh, subsequently, I met Eloise and we started uh, dating. And um, when that became serious, I actually left uh, the group because I said to Richard, I, "I, you know, it's a bit of a conflict of interest. I'm finding it a bit too hard uh, to manage that, and I don't want to compromise uh, the relationship with Eloise." So, but later on, after we got engaged, and uh, you know, I came back into the fold on the basis that. Uh, I'd work on part-time on the manufacturing, but I really wanted to start my own uh, operation, which was the investment company, but uh, uh, which I did and subsequently became the Thorny Investment Group. And Richard lent me the initial uh, seed money uh, of a million dollars to get that underway, even though he really wanted me to stay in the corporate uh, side and work with him and the, and the rest of the family. But Having said that, I got the opportunity to work closely with him for many, many years and spent a lot of time at the, through the manufacturing operation and really uh, listening and learning from him. And as you know, he was a great sharer of ideas and he was a visionary. And so, uh, you know, he was an educator. So I was like a sponge. I tried to learn as much as I could from him because there was a lot to learn. Now, he was a different type of entrepreneur to Robert Holmes Report. Robert Holmes Report was uh, more of a financial investor. Richard was more of an operator. So he built an incredibly manufacturing operation in Australia, uh, recycled packaging um, paper-based um, organisation. Um, one of the largest in the world now. And to do it and retain it as a private company is really incredible effort because the capital expenditure you need to build these uh, factories and plants, they're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. The bank will only give you so much and uh, really you've got to rely on generating cash flow to repay that debt uh, when you can. So he was very focused um, on cash flow. Cash flow, cash flow was his. He wasn't that focused on balance sheet. He was focused on uh, revenue growth and cash flow and margin. And that was, uh, it was driving all, always to be efficient in that regard in terms of expenses, costs, uh, manage it very tightly, collect your money on time, uh, but also grow the bigger picture, the, the vision. So uh, from him, I really learned the fundamentals of building a business building a corporate organization, organizational structure, what type of people uh, can drive an organization, uh, the balance between the entrepreneurs and the more administrators in the business, the sales dynamic, the marketing dynamic, uh, all the elements of a business. So that was a great learning uh, for me um, from someone like him who was just a uh, probably the, the best industrialist in Australia, uh, you know, in the last hundred years. He was incredibly passionate about his people that worked for him as well. And he, I, I was always interested in the way he set the business up almost in different silos, not because it was necessarily the most cost effective, but he could see which managers were, were outperforming because they were in control of their own silo. Yes. You, um, is that not love of the people, but I, I guess that importance of people, is that something that's transferred into to your investment and how you analyze and look at businesses yeah yeah he was very much look after your customers look after your people they're the 
they're the best assets of the group uh, over and above the hard plant and equipment. So it was very much, um, and he had the ability to motivate people greatly to achieve things that they didn't even think that they could achieve. So that was a unique quality of his. And he did that uh, by, by sort of embracing them, including them in everything around his family life uh, and all the other interests that he had. It was all a big melting pot, whether it was football or philanthropy or, uh, or politics or uh, anything else that he was involved in. And it was a vast array of things as well as business. So include, and so he enriched everybody's life beyond their just pure career. And I think that was one of the things that was very attractive to the employees and their partners. He rewarded them well, and he also gave them a lot of freedom to uh, pursue the business the way they sort about saw that there was the best opportunity. Having said that, he was over the top of everything, and he was, you know, able to keep uh, to keep on top of it, you know, with his raw energy really and the hours that he put into it. So, uh, but what I learned from that in particular is uh, the nature of people that it takes to succeed in an organization, and also. Um, the, the, the support to those people who are the sort of the rainmakers or the deal makers or the, um, the people who drive an organization. So it absolutely translated to me into the philosophy we took into Thorny in our investments. So when we make investments, uh, we're very much backing people. And in doing so, we're trying to understand what motivates them. So uh, we spend 50% of our time analyzing the business, the financials, the due diligence that you'd normally do, but probably another 50, the other 50% just on the people around the company. We want to make sure the CEO has got the, um, the passion, has got the vision, has got the uh, financial exposure um, to drive the company. We want to know that he's got a strong CFO alongside him, that the, um, that, that the, uh, the, the financial transparency is very strong and then everyone knows where they are within that, uh, uh, the numbers, including cash flow, as I mentioned before, is something that we uh, focus on or cash burn, depending on, you know, the nature of the company. We want to know if it's a public company that we have the right chairman there and the right directors who are not just what I call rubber stamp directors or people who are there just... Uh, uh, for a stipend, we want to know that there are those people there who are, have themselves got um, hopefully a shareholding, but really are contributing with certain skills to support the strategy that the CEO puts forward and indeed enhance it and um, are more engaged and passive, uh, even though that may not be a popular uh, kind of opinion. And a lot of people say directors should be very hands off and not micromanage. And I agree they shouldn't micromanage, but I don't think they should be hands-off either. I think they should be engaged, not have too many other directorships so that they're serious about their commitment and uh, be a robust part of the uh, debate on where the company is going. So for us people, the motivation of people, um, the uh, even the sort of uh, are, they, are they flamboyant? Is that a good thing? Are they big spenders? You know, we used to walk around when we used to go visit companies and see what what uh, what was the cars that the uh, top executives have? And if we found a fleet of Bentleys out the back, we never invented, never invested in that type of company. Yeah. But uh, we wanted people who are sort of humble, modest, and are going to be, uh, you know, value each dollar that uh, that they've got to spend and to grow the business. So the pe people, their capabilities, their skills, their networks, but mainly their drive and their passion, and uh, is what is what really is a key investing uh, criteria for us are you hesitant to invest in companies where the ceo doesn't have a uh, a reasonable shareholding in the business yeah we'll certainly question as to why that is the case and um, um uh, if there's a good enough explanation that's fine uh, but if they're holding back and they're more just a professional ceo and not committed enough financially uh that will uh, raise some uh, concerns with us what about when the CEO or the, the board start selling shares? How do you generally... Yeah, well, we're also very conscious. In fact, we, we circulate daily within our group a um, an update of director selling, in fact, 
um, and we, we watch that quite carefully as a uh, key indicator of what's happening. When that happens, we try to get an understanding as to what the motivation was. Um, sometimes it's very legitimate that the, you know they need to um, uh, pay a tax bill, they need to buy a house for their family, they've got uh, school fees and all of that. So uh, that's fine, uh, that's all. But if they're abandoning the ship too readily or too easily, we, we won't take kindly to that. What about the traits of some of your biggest wins? I know Mesoblast, Webjet, you were a very early investor in. Monodelphus might have been one of your biggest. Talk yeah. about management there and, and why they gave you so much comfort well, to, I guess, invest in the first place, but also hold on to it for, for such a long yeah. time. Well, I think that uh, in the case of Monodelphus, I think, well, when I started off, I didn't have much capital. So I tended to focus on the small or micro cap companies. And uh, Monodelphus was one of those at the time. And in fact, I think I was the first kind of corporate investor to go and visit them. And uh, what I found was a, uh, a man, John Rubino, who's currently the chairman, um, who was a fascinating um, uh, man. He, he spoke in kind of broken English with a very heavy Italian accent. I probably could only catch every third or fourth word. But what he had was uh, a tremendous work ethic, um, uh, was uh, very, very smart, and uh, was very... Um, uh, very complex in his thinking, but very basic in his approach to business. And I liked that. And he was hard and he was uh, tough and he was straightforward. And um, he had a very good um, group of loyal people around him in his, uh, in his small team. And we liked that as well. And they were hard at it. They were, you know, you'd call them anytime, night or day, and they were working, weekends included. There was no, there was no break. So, um, and as I got to know him better, and he's still, he's still, I regard him as still a sort of mentor and close friend, uh, actually, today. And in fact, he's a large shareholder, I think second or third largest shareholder of my, uh, in my LRCs that we manage, uh, Thorny Opportunities and Thorny, and Thorny Technologies. Um, and uh, really, um, uh, with, without a serious educational sort of uh, pedigree, just a very, very smart uh, capable, focused uh, individuals. So the thing what we, uh, and so we, we, we saw him uh, and we saw the growth path that he envisaged and we stayed on the journey with him um, uh, actually for, for many, many, many years. And the thing is, what's very hard to find, Chris, is actually a really quality management team uh, all the way through. So you've got a, a visionary, strong, capable CEO Many of the founder CEOs uh, can't take a business right through their whole vision, actually. They don't have all the skills. Richard Pratt was an exception. He was able to take a very small family business and grow it into a global empire, yeah. uh, which is terrific. And Anthony, his son, has followed, followed in his footsteps doing really well, um, which is great. But it's not often that uh, entrepreneurs can go all the way, especially in a public company where you have to have other skill sets and you have to convince institutional investors who have come from very different backgrounds to back you. But when you do find someone who's got that capability and it can build quality people around them who are not scared to have people who are smarter than them in different areas in the company, uh, they don't want yes men just around them, even though they're strong personalities. They want to be challenged by constructive ideas. When you find a group like that, and Webjet is another team like that, the people at Webjet, for example, um, you want to stay with them because they will find a way to continue to grow, to continue to outperform, to continue to give you alpha. Usually they're big shareholders themselves, so they're likely to pay a good dividend because they're a recipient as well. So the hard thing is to find that team and to get close to that team. If you do that, why not go on the journey with them because they will deliver for you. And that's the approach we've taken. And so there must be times, particularly, you know, a business like Monodelphus, beholden to cycles in, in commodity prices. Yes. You must have known, you know, purely in that single investment, it's a good time to sell. Does the fact that the management team is just so elite and you've crafted such a strong relationship with them, there's that the benefit of potentially selling at the top of the cycle, is that dwarfed by 
that business relationship in the long term. Well, it probably it probably is to some degree a compromise. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, we don't sell, and we have sell uh, we have sold uh, considerably in that. And just as we did with Webjet, as you as you mentioned at one stage, where I think we own thirteen or fourteen percent of, of of Webjet. So we're still conscious of that, but we probably wouldn't sell out completely because we want to keep our relationship. And on the other hand, when it does dip down, uh, you know, we're an aggressive buyer of uh, of that stock to lift our holding again because we do believe in the management uh, team. So it probably does uh, change our consideration in terms of exiting fully. Um, and we'll also always keep a watching brief on them and stay involved in some form or another because we want them to believe in us as a good shareholder as well. And so when they need to raise more capital for whatever it is, an acquisition, for example, uh, we want to know that they'll call us and say, we're doing this, um, you know, and we'll have the opportunity to participate and to support them. And they know we're, we're, we're a good shareholder. So I think um, um, one of the things we've been proud of at Thorny is building our reputation as a good shareholder. And so, uh, for example, we're quite active in the pre-IPO market uh, one, of, one of the few really active players in it. And the reason companies come to us uh, and ask us to participate at that level is, I think, because we have over many years built up a reputation for a good, loyal shareholder. We'll support you if you keep performing and we'll stay with you. So, and in the pre-IPO market, they want us to come aboard. Our brand, to some extent, helps them raise other money. But not only that, it's not just the capital. It's, we can help them with our network, we can help them get good directors to, as they prepare for the IPO, we can help them identify the right investment house to work with, uh, or, or um, you know, to actually raise the money at the IPO. We can help them get a sort of commitment from that firm that they will follow up with research at the appropriate time. And also, um, you know, constructively in a positive way, um, uh, debate with them the, the strategy and the opportunities uh, might be acquisition or whatever. Um, and because I think we're trusted because people have seen we're not just day traders in and out of the stock. Uh, uh, we're, we're there for the journey with the companies um, if we believe in them. And so when you talk about the, the market more broadly at the minute, do you think appreciating stock prices that we've seen since the, the March crash? Do you think they're more a case of people wanting to pay more for asset prices due to incredibly low interest rates? Or do you think it's a, a case of the what they're being valued in, e.g. currencies, are being debased everywhere and that perhaps share prices aren't really going up, but be it currencies all around the world are decreasing in value? Yeah, look, I think it's, it's probably all of those things, actually. Um, and I think... Um, you know, you look at alternative asset classes and look at where can you get a return? You know, you're not getting anything really having your money in the bank. So how long do you want to sit there if you've got money with money in the bank? You don't want to sit there too long because uh, even with low in, in inflation, you're still going backwards if you do that for too long. So um, uh, equities, and I believe in equities, I, I've built my um, success on equities. So I always think over the long term, you're going to get a good... Um, you're going to get a good or adequate uh, return. And if you happen to be very skillful at it, you'll, you'll get a very uh, nice uh, um, uh, IRR on your investments there. So I lean towards uh, uh, equities. But the other thing that's critical at the moment driving the market, particularly in an uh, election year in the US, and we're following in the same thing with Australia, is the stimulus that's going on uh, uh, globally, really, in the Western world. So you've got... Uh, billions and billions of dollars of being um, uh, short term through things like JobKeeper in Australia, but more strategically for the longer term is in infrastructure type of uh, spend, which in itself will have a multiplier effect with employment and so on. And, and to some extent, you know, you want to try to identify those uh, um, companies that are beneficiaries of, of, of that spend. So I think with massive stimulus going on now, it's affecting the currencies, as you say, but the absolute dollars are enormous and likely to be even bigger than what's being done now. We saw that in the GFC and we saw that enabled the markets to uh, come out of the dip quite uh, strongly. Now, the dip we had this time has been relatively short 
and it wouldn't surprise me if we had another dip at some point in time uh, again. Uh, It's really a balancing act. I can argue strongly for the markets to be holed up uh, with the stimulus um, um, that's going on. Uh, But I can also argue for it that there's going to be a time when it's going to uh, back off. And I think uh, as a result, we'll see some volatility. I think over the next uh, 6, 12, 18 months is be quite significant. I think the moves we can see. One of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about is the deflationary effects of ageing demographics and technology, which have been all encompassing. And obviously, globalisation has been a big factor there as well. But then you've got things being introduced like fiscal stimulus, like we've never seen before. We've got currency being printed by central banks all around the world. We've got globalisation decreasing for the first time in a long time and a more focus on localisation. And then a whole move toward ESG and the importance of the environment on uh, on companies and how they manufacture things, which yeah. are obviously inflationary forces. How do you think those two things are going to measure up against each other in the next two or three years? Yeah, look, I think you've we've touched on some critical thematics. Um, I think uh, in terms of technology, first, um, the technology revolution, as everyone knows, is well and truly upon us, and we're partway through. Um, uh, part way through it uh, in, in the sense that the, the, the global reach of technology through devices, for example, um, has been huge. But, you know, a lot of people describe that as the infrastructure has been set now for global reach. And now it's the apps that are driving the uh, use on that infra- infrastructure, if you like. It's like the traffic on a toll road. You know, you build a toll road first, uh, the CityLink, for example, and then you populate it with the traffic and that just seems to grow and grow and grow. And we're seeing that dynamic uh, as well. In fact, if you look at Apple's earnings the other day, how much was from uh, the apps as opposed to the uh, phone sales itself. It's just huge and going up. So we're, and this, I think Corona, there's no doubt that Corona has um, actually fast-tracked that even to another uh, another level that, uh, you know, maybe contracted five or ten years into what's going to be one or two years, even now we're on a Zoom call. I didn't even know about Zoom, uh, you know, before Corona and it had six or eight million subscribers. Now it's got 300 million or something like that that are using Zoom. And and that's um, going to probably become a mainstay of the way people do business. So we're seeing real changes in the way people are doing business. The implications of all of that, we still don't know in terms of... Um, uh, pe- people's mental health in operating remotely, um, what it's going to do for uh, corporate real estate, you know, people are going to downsize their offices. Um, and, uh, you know, you're going to have, re- uh, you know, we're involved in a company called Nitro, which is uh, like remote document signing, which is just uh, a really, uh, you know, uh, even I'm, who's not tech savvy, particularly using it all, all the time. So, you know, you're adapting. And the interesting thing is it's not only millennials. Older people are being forced to adapt now because they have to buy their groceries and other things online. So um, when people were talking about tech revolution, they weren't including older people. And then suddenly they're, um, they're, they're engaged as well. And, and you can see that uh, through, uh, you know, things like the buy now, pay later space where people are just buying so much online and looking for alternative uh, financial payment methodologies. So I think we're seeing the technology revolution being fast-tracked and that's going to have huge implications in so, in every area of business and um, in particular things like uh, medicine and uh, telemedicine uh, and uh, healthcare. Uh, so it's really exciting from that point of view and uh, you definitely want to be an investor, I think, or we're active in 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 many of those tech stops, having been an early investor, like you said, in Webjet 10 or even 15 years ago, many other companies, uh, we've got the uh, grounding for a lot of the investment work we're doing now. And indeed, that's why we set up Thorny Technologies, because we're so active and we're looking now for uh, technologies, not only in Australia, but in Israel and the US, uh, where we're active. So you got those thematics for sure. Uh, the deflationary environment is, um, uh, you know, challenging because we saw what happened in Japan for for decades, really, in a in a deflationary kind of setup. There was, uh, you know, low growth, um, and uh, their demographic was an aging population, 
um, with a sort of old-fashioned business um, um, uh, parameters like employment for life uh, in the old days in Japanese factories. And they've just had to adapt in order to um, make themselves profitable again. Now, then they're using their currency to buy things uh, globally, actually, because that's where the growth was uh, coming from. So they were buying growth, actually, in geographically expanding. So, uh, And that was part of their whole uh, start of globalization. And then we saw the globalization in supply chain and so on. And, and, and now, probably arguably, we've seen that go too far. Uh, because even in Australia, we find we didn't have enough essential manufacturing in our own country, and we're reliant on uh, China and other places. And I think that'll change if the government sets the right uh, framework for that to happen and incentivize the return uh, to do that, maybe accelerated depreciation for CapEx, and a lot of industrial reform is going to have to happen, and we're going to have to tackle high electricity and gas prices. All of that can be done, and that sets the scene for the next 50 years in Australia. But you can't have reliance on your pharmaceuticals industries from offshore, for example. Uh, it's just too risky and, and other things. So a lot of the thematics you touched on are going to be quite have dramatic impact over the next uh, uh, few years. And as an investor, you need to be conscious of those and try to identify the opportunities in that regard and uh, stay well clear of those companies or indeed those countries that uh, are not adapting to the changes required in this uh, in this low inflation environment. You mentioned that that move towards bringing manufacturing back into Australia domestically. The consequence of that is going to be those goods are going to cost more money. Do you think the appetite is there for the people, you know, broadly speaking, that their desire to to consume goods manufactured locally is strong, they are willing to pay a higher price for it? Or do you think it's a case that they like the idea, but when push comes to shove, they won't want to pay a higher price for goods they could source cheaper from overseas? Yeah, I, I think that um, the best example may be to look at the US where they have uh, under Trump been bringing a lot of manufacturing back to the US. They've been encouraging it and uh, sort of a nationalistic pride and buy America. And that seems to be working. So um, arguably the higher costs um, versus, uh, you know, imported product. Uh, and it still seems to be successfully going. So I think people uh, will have a consciousness of supporting local, uh, wanting their own economies to be strong. And really in rebuilding the economies after Corona, I think there'll be a lot of support in doing that. The question about then is the arbitrage between, uh, you know, uh, how much more are they prepared to pay than what it was before? Um, I think that's if it's too much, it'll be tested and the, the habits won't change. You'll, you'll morph back to the overseas uh, product if the quality is okay. I think that's where the emphasis, as I mentioned, is on government to set the scene that that um, arbitrage of uh, pricing is reduced. And that's by tackling, as I said, the, the high cost of doing business in Australia. It's too bureaucratic from a red tape point of view. Uh, the tax system is too complex and arguably tax rates are too high. Um, definitely we have to introduce, in my view, more flexibility in the workplace, um, allowing uh, um, you know, more flexible hours uh, without too much financial penalty to do that. More sharing of the workload in this uh, new world as people work remotely and will make might spend some time at home, sometimes at the factory or the office. Um, definitely, we have to reduce this aberration of um, uh, gas price and electricity prices uh, crazily being uh, uh, much higher than uh, you know the exported uh, uh, price. Um, if we get that right, then we can reduce the uh, cost base of goods and services, and then there won't be an issue at all. But it's a time for the government, I think, to be bold and brave, and they've got every um, opportunity to do that now. And if that's the case, we can come out of the other side of it as a much stronger uh, potential economy uh, for, for many, many years to come. But we have to have some big initiatives in that regard, and uh, uh, I'd certainly be encouraging and supporting of, of, of those, and um, we have to break through in that regard.
Very well said. Now I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of the time and there's three questions I want to finish off with just uh, to give our viewers a bit of an insight on uh, some basic investment fundamentals. What was your first investment you ever made? Gee, um, my first investment, I think, was investing in a bicycle so I could go and deliver newspapers. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was a good one. And I think I paid off the bike in about six weeks. That's so uh, getting, uh, getting some tips. So I think the lesson from that is uh, you've got to invest. Um, you've got to invest to, to grow. Um, so that was, I think, the first one I made. And what investment advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Uh, I think to uh, believe in yourself uh, more um, and also to uh, have a go, I think. Uh, I think we hesitated too much and you wait to try and get all the uh, sort of everything lined up perfectly and say, well, I'll just wait to to do this before I have a try at that, even though you really want to try that. So I think if you've got a conviction, if you've got a passion, if you've got something you're really interested in, um, just give it a try. And um, also, I think culturally, it's a weakness in Australia, uh, but um, failure is not, uh, one failure is not the end of your career. You know, uh, As long as you've been diligent at it, as long as you've been honest, uh, with people who have been with you, as long as you've tried really hard, it's okay to make mistakes and just make sure you learn from them. Don't be fearful of them, just make sure you learn from them. And what's the most common mistake you see mum and dad investors making? I think they sell out too early of their winners. Uh, they take, see a little bit of profit and say, let's lock that and let's grab it. And uh, as I said, if you've got a good management team or a good company with a good product, uh, let your profits grow but make sure when you've made a mistake, you cut that quickly. Beautiful. Alex Wozett, thanks very much. I, I loved it. Really enjoyed the chat. Okay, Chris. Thanks a lot. Good to see you and let's chat again. Thanks, mate. This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health Insurance with AIA Vitality, cover that protects and rewards. To find out more, call 133-AIA or visit aiahealth.com.au today. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.